You're listening to the Around the Lens podcast, the home of high-quality, roundtable, visual journalism discussion about the news, topics, and gear related to our career field. Now, here's the host of our show, David J. Murphy. Hello, and welcome to Around the Lens, episode 234. I'm your host, David J. Murphy. Around the Lens is the only visual journalism-focused roundtable discussion show on the internet. Um, I am a visual journalist based out of South Korea, but let me talk to you about our guests this week. Joining us around the table uh, is a freelance commercial photographer and APA chairman, Mr. Travis W. Keys. Hello, Travis. Hey, Dave. What's going on, my friend? Uh, not much, buddy. I had notes this time, so hopefully I didn't uh, miss the title too bad. No, I'll try no, to condense no. it because you have you have a very long title, and I just I got to... I do I wear many different hats. This is true. You do. I've seen you like three, four hats. You pile them high. <laughs> I know. Nice. I don't. I don't look great. Great in hats. I can get away with like two hats: baseball cap and maybe a cowboy hat. That's basically it. All other hats just don't quite work. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, also joining us this week in Washington D.C. is freelance photojournalist Evelyn Hochstein. Hello, Evelyn. Good morning. You're sounding a little bit low. I don't know if that's my end. No, nope, she sounded suddenly distant. Uh, okay. I, I don't like it when Evelyn's distant, you know? Whether <laughs> she's going for coffee or some other uh, thing she has to do. I have a lot of morning breakfast, oh. yeah. <laughs> right, well, welcome back from Cape Cod, Evelyn. Thank you. Thank you. Trust me, you want me to have my coffee in the morning. Indeed. I, I'm the same way. Uh, our special guest this week is a documentary photographer, photojournalist, and filmmaker based in Los Angeles, Isadora Kosofsky. Hello, Isadora. Hi, good morning. Thanks for good having morning. me. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us from Los Angeles. I know it's early over there, but I definitely appreciate your dedication uh, to the show and getting up early for us. That's very appreciated. Um, I am so eager to talk to you all about, you know, your work and, of course, um, you know, the the work you've done, you know, covering um, so many different great stories. But, of course, your project on, you know, the, the sort of threesome senior couple that we'll talk about towards the end of this uh, week's show. Uh, but let's get into the visual journalism news of the week, first and foremost. Um, first up, uh, you're going to like this topic, Travis. Uh, let's talk Sony. Sony finally confirmed what many of us suspected, and some of us already knew, Travis, uh, that the long-rumored A7S III will be a reality. Hot on the heels of Canon's recent bombshell announcements of the Canon R5 and R6. I, I, I did use hot on purpose there, but anyways. That was good. That was good. Thank you. Uh, Sony will be revealing the A7S III on July 28th. Now, specs, official specs have not been released, but there are many rumors going around. So let's talk about those rumors and what they mean for Sony, the camera industry, and why Canon is still far superior, in my opinion. Uh, anyways, we've got a redesigned 12-megapixel sensor with fast readout, whatever that means, a 16-bit raw output, a claimed 15 stops of dynamic range, uh, 1080p, 240 so for slow motion, some 10-bit 4224 k 600 megabits per second bit rate, uh, base ISO of 160, no record limits. I'm sure that'll be rubbed in my face. 
fully articulating, fully articulating screen. Welcome to the club and uh, dual US UHS to SD card slots. Um, normally, I would, I would, well, I would typically throw this to you, Travis, because you're our Sony expert. But as is tradition on the round the lens, we always give first topic to our guest. So Isadora, first off, what do you shoot with, and what are your thoughts on Sony's new camera? Uh, I just recently started using Sony in the last year, but I'm still mainly on a Nikon D850. But I started with the Sony uh, R series in the last year. And I like it. Um, it's what would what would be my opinion on it versus Nikon? I've been a a loyal Nikon uh, user, older. What would you? I don't I don't know shooter. <laughs> I've been a full Nikon Nikon customer. Wow. I recently transitioned to Sony, and I think their units are wonderful. They're great. They're great gear. Um, I'm looking forward to continuing to use them and uh, seeing their improvements. I use uh, my Sony both for stills and for motion. Um, you're able to I'm sorry, what do you use for stills? Uh, the Sony. Well, I use the Sony uh, R7 for stills and for motion work for um, okay. I 4K. Uh, a documentary feature that I've been developing for the past eight years, and I oh my was gosh. on a using Canon, and then I switched to Sony, and it's it's been great. It's beautiful 4K uh, footage, so I'm excited for the new developments. You said you've been doing this documentary for eight years, so I'm imagining you've probably started in 1080p and have transitioned to 4K, or have you always been shooting 4K somehow with this? Oh no, I was on a Nikon. Mark III mounted on a Red Rock system when I first started with this woman that I've been shadowing. So it's 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 a, a bit of a challenge in the editing room. Yeah. Um, but it works out. You know, it's it's a, it's a longitudinal study of her life, and uh, she is a fascinating, powerful woman to watch and observe and immerse yourself in. Her life is. So dynamics, I don't think people will be as hung up on the footage, but with color correction and editing tricks, it's looking okay, quality-wise. Okay. Yeah. Now, obviously, the S series have been more, you know, they can obviously shoot photos, but they're more video-centric cameras. Um, does the S series or this S camera intrigue you at all? Do you think you might add it to your collection and potentially use it for your documentary? Or are you pretty happy with the uh, what the R produces for you? Uh, I think I'm happy with what I have, but who knows? Maybe that that would make sense to transition to that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, Evelyn, you recently tried Sony equipment for your protest work. You were considering the A9. Um, does this camera intrigue you at all, uh, or is it you know again more video focused and your work is more photo focused? So it doesn't really something you might consider. You're muted, uh, Evelyn. I haven't spent too much time considering it. You know, uh, a lot, too many choices. Technical. I, I just, I really liked the A9, and I think I need to now give the the new Canon a try. So I think I'm going to focus yeah. on that. I shoot so little video. I mean, I'd like to shoot more video, obviously, but um, yeah, 
you know, right now that would be the, just fo autofocus and, and stills would be the biggest priority, you know, like ramping up my autofocus game. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we didn't have you on last week to talk about the R5, and that was one of our big discussion topics. So, I mean, it's been a week now, been about, you know, two weeks or so since the camera was announced. What are your thoughts on it? The R5 Honestly, and the R6. I've read a couple of reviews. I got to get my hands on it. You know, I can yeah. read all about it, but really until I try it, I'm not going to, you know, jump. Like, it's not in the same wheel. It's like if it was the next iteration of, like, the Mark IV, let's say, and my Mark IV mm -hmm. now is several years old and it was time for me to upgrade, I might just, like, jump and buy the latest model. But right. for the wireless, I got to try it because I'm still – it's still a challenge for me. Um, and I really did enjoy – uh, shooting with the Sony's, but it just makes more sense being a Canon person that I would give this a shot sure. before I jump ship. Although you can use the lens adapters, so there is that yeah. on the Sony's. Um, so I don't know, Canon. Get let me get my hands on it, and uh, <laughs> well, no, no one really has their hands on it yet. So right. <laughs> yeah, and I don't know how long you have. That's your Peter McKinnon. The list exactly, exactly. Who want to try it, but I have to give um, props to Sony for just sending me. They sent me like so much demo gear, it was pretty awesome to try. Yeah, it was a lot of it was great. Well, it's just piling up in their warehouse because no one else wants it. No, oh. she actually knew someone that was uh hooked her up with Sony. That's all. Yeah, she had, she had ins. She had ins. <laughs> yeah, I need somebody hooking me up with Canon stuff. I need some ins with Canon. Well, nobody, um, you can't yeah. get it because nobody has it yet. <laughs> yeah. If I was still in Long Island, I know where the Canon Service Center is. Maybe I could like weasel my way in there and see if they have one. Didn't they close um, that down? I think they I don't closed know. Yeah, they? They did. Oh, that's yeah. sad. I remember I found memories of that place. I don't think there's anything on the East Coast now to send your. Yeah, I know. I send mine to Newport News, Virginia. Yeah, oh, okay. yeah. They closed it down. So obviously, Evelyn, yeah, you want to get your hands on the equipment. You know, I'm I'll probably, you know, is there is there somewhere in DC where you could potentially try the camera and, and try it out before buying it, or do you think you'll have to buy it? I think I'd go through CPS. I mean, it might be really hard to get like yeah. a demo of it, but that that would be my route would be to call either local Canon rep or go through CPS and see. Right. But I think it's going to be pretty pretty hard. There'll be a little weight on that one. It might be, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I don't Spend know. Until the Mark II version comes out. Yeah. Right. Okay. And you can so, use yeah. Mark One. Um, now, obviously, you're waiting to get your hands on it, but does, does the R5 or the R6, do you have a, a preference towards either one based no. on the specs? No. But I, do you I, want higher? You know, I know you're primarily a photographer, so do you want a 20-megapixel sensor or a 45-megapixel sensor? Obviously, I think you want more megapixels, but you tell me. What's more sure. important to you? I don't know, Dave. I'd have to like read it again. I mean, I glanced at it. I was like, "Ooh, this sounds great." But do you want to spend four thousand dollars, or do you want to spend twenty five hundred dollars? <laughs> I don't know. When you're spending that many thousands of dollars on a camera, like a thousand dollars, you expect it not difference. to. You're right. You expect it not to overheat and to actually work. Yeah, it's true. Well, it won't overheat when taking photos. <laughs> which is what Evelyn primarily does. So. This is true. Um, all right, let's let's. We've waited long enough, Travis. Gush, gush about us about the Sony A7S III and why it's the next coming of, you know, no, I can't talk God's gift of camera gear. I know. Well, you can talk about the rumored specs. I can. I can talk about all the rumored specs. Yes. Uh, uh, which I know you is, can't talk about what actually is going to in it, but you know. Yeah. 
So the rumored rumors. specs, the rumored specs are, are, are I mean, this is a, this is a camera that uh, you know, unlike the the R5, which is trying to blend, uh, you know, really good uh, video specs into a camera that's it, it, Canon's never been great about. They've always crippled their their video. They've always you know had you know either crop or or, or somewhat 4K and stuff like that. I, I think this is one of those another iterations of a. a where they, they don't quite have the video there yet. Um, I think it's an interesting okay. camera. I, I think it's the next step. I don't think I think people that jump on this early uh, might be making a mistake because uh, it's uh, it's just too early and it's not in enough hands yet to see the real life uh, and what it's going to do. Whereas the Sony A7 three uh the s3 is now you know it's third generation of it uh they waited a long time to put this one out for very specific reasons and and they're they're addressing issues that i don't know why canon didn't address i mean if you're going to do 8k you know it's going to run hot and if they're running you know putting out a statement about it you know running hot on 4k and 8k they should have addressed those they had they saw two, three versions of Sony where they were having overheat problems. Now, Sony has uh, really kind of redesigned from the ground up this whole camera to deal with different heat sinks, uh, the way it deals with the air coming through it. Um, and uh, it's, you know, it's shooting 4K at 120 FPS. Uh, you know, it's 16-bit uh, raw output. Uh, you know, it's it's now using a, supposedly a, a, a slot that uses UHS-2 and CF in the same slot, which is really impressive. Um, it finally brought an articulating screen, which we've been waiting for forever on. Um, it's, uh, it's, you know, it, it has 16 bit uh, raw output. Supposedly this is, this is a camera that doesn't have record limits that doesn't overheat. This is a serious camera for people that want to record and use video. Um, uh, and it's geared to that. And now, you know, they're saying it doesn't no longer stand for, uh, sensitive on the s it sounds for superior uh yeah, yeah that's that right. that's that's what uh, the sony is claiming but uh, we'll see i mean it's it's obviously a very very intriguing camera and a, a lot of people are in production world and in video are going to jump onto this because of its form factor and now what it can do in terms of video and also all the different s logs and and profiles that it puts in its cameras that you know canon other people do not do um and uh, it, it has a lot of stuff going for it yeah again based on the rumored specs that have been you know uh, talked about here do you think this might be a camera that would be added to your collection like do you see no i i don't camera? do i don't do enough video work for me to you know spend like i i would rather put my money into an r which shoots great 4k and it's beautiful and it doesn't overheat you know i i can get away with what i'm doing uh, you know on my you know my a7 uh three my uh my uh, r4 um so i i can i can get away with that if i was going to do you know kind of uh real a lot more video production stuff like that i would get this camera i mean it's a 12 megapixel camera I and mean, granted people get all kind of bent on what is 12 megapixels versus 40 yeah. the video on this right. one the, the the actual pixels are much bigger so they're much more sensitive to the light coming in so that's why you get that great low light performance and uh, the way they've uh, you know kind of stacked their sensors and stuff like that and use it it, it actually allows for faster readouts and their evf uh it, has already been amazing. This one is supposed to be even better, so uh, it's probably going to be the best EVF out there. Yeah, I know, absolutely. You know, obviously, uh, if the rumors are true, that's only going to be a 12 megapixel sensor. Are you disappointed by that, or do you no, think... No, because, nope, because I mean, that's more than enough for 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 4K. I mean, that's yeah. it's going to look beautiful. The video is like, you don't even use, 12, you know, it's like, it, that's that sensor, the way it 
uses light. I actually went and shot uh, a whole video, uh, I mean, a, a photo series on that, that camera, the very first generation A7S in Guatemala on the streets, and the pictures I got were beautiful. And, uh, you know, I didn't have to bring any lights with me. I shot just available light on the streets of Guatemala at night, and it was beautiful. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, you know, Isadora, you mentioned that you shoot or shot Nikon. Um, Nikon, of course, released their mirrorless cameras last year or a year or two years ago now. Uh, their Z series. I don't know if you looked into those as potential, um, you know, cameras for your kit or not. But of course, they're potentially announcing like this is the year of new announcements of cameras. It seems so. They're potentially going to announce their like Z6s or Z7s. You know, their next iteration of those cameras. Um, do you give you given any consideration to what Nikon's offering? You know, in terms of their mirrorless cameras. I, I transitioned to Sony for mirrorless. And I haven't tried the Z series. I would be open to it. Just, just okay. have been, but it looks it looks great. I, however, I don't know that many documentary photographers using the Z series. So maybe that's an ignorant right. comment. But from my circle of, of friends, colleagues, I, I've I've heard of. I know Carol Guzzi uses the Z series and has oh, shot okay. some beautiful work. Um, about the migrant crisis over a year ago using the Z series at night and it looked uh, very good image quality wise. Mm -hmm. but I don't know. I'm, I, I guess I've just, um, maybe I don't put enough thought into my gear. Maybe the Z well, on the horizon. <laughs> in reality, the only gear that matters is the six inches behind the viewfinder, right? That's the only- Is your, is your head- gear. I, I have 12 inches, but uh, if you're only using six, man, you might. <laughs> it's the frontal lobe. That's where all the imagery. <laughs> or whatever, whatever, however the saying goes. Yeah. No, I think the main difference, the main difference from all these cameras is if you're relying on, on using this camera as a video camera and you're relying on it to shoot video, you, you're not, you have to make sure it's going to work in a, in a critical situation. So if you're getting a one take of something and your camera overheats or goes down because of something like that, you have to make sure that uh, whatever you're recording on is, is going to do it. So if you have a no time limit and stuff like that on the, the Sony S, that's going to be a more, you know, is a more professional camera. You know, you know, any other camera that possible can overheat and just shut down while you're filming. It's just not going to be a professional camera for you or, or in professional usage, and uh, I, I wouldn't use it. And, and if you were going to actually really use uh, any of the Canon stuff, uh, I mean, for, for $4,000 uh, on that uh, ER5, you, you expect it not to, you know, turn down, turn off after 10 minutes after, you know, especially on 4k and, uh, mm -hmm. you might as well buy a C100 or a C200 if you, if you're really going after video, cause those are beautiful cameras and they, and they work fantastic. Yeah. I, I, I'm very intrigued by the 4k 120 if I can actually reach that spec and, you know, shoot and, you know, not have the limits or the overheating that that's very impressive yeah. to me. Yeah. Um, you know, what, what I've always loved the S series cameras for their low light capability. And, you know, I've always been blown away by, you know, how well it can record in low light. I would love it if they somehow were able to be able to shoot in even lower light and maintain that quality. Although I don't think the sensor size is changing. Um, so I don't, and I don't know. I don't know if, if they are able, if they can claim this 15 stops of dynamic range, maybe they can get um, better low light quality and, and shoot in a darker situation. I, I think that would be pretty intriguing um, if they can make that um, make that more robust. Um, but yeah, be on the lookout. You know, it's always 
you know, we, we can, you know, we rib each other about our camera choices, of course, but, you know, um, all the manufacturers pushing the limits is what it's all about. And I'm really intrigued to see how these new technologies in the S series fall in line with the R and the, the regular seven. And I think, you know, we're going to see this like definitely, you know, integrated into those bodies if they can handle it. And perhaps, you know, I mean, the R is the resolution beast. Perhaps that will be the one that shoots 8K. My only actual worry about the S and what it'll be seen is because of the uh, the way they're doing the heat flow and the sinking and, and, and possibly adding some airflow to it that makes it a little less weatherproof. So I don't know about yeah. the weatherproof on this and, and using it in rain if that is the case. Uh, so that, that'll be something to be seen. Yeah, speaking of that, I got my uh, S1H right here. I just happen to have it with me. And you know, if you've not seen the camera in person, it's got little air vents right here. Yeah. Um, it's got air vents right here. So you can't really shoot this thing like in the rain or the surf or anything like that. So. Does it Does it take two people to hold that thing because it's so big? Uh, yeah, it's a team of four, actually. So <laughs> I hold the body. Someone else holds the lens. Someone holds me. And then someone else holds that person. So it's, it's a team effort. It's not that bad, actually. I wish Canon had released like, okay, here's the R5, right, that overheats. And has the limits, and then here's the R5s that has a fan on it that doesn't overheat. You know, that would have been nice if Canon could there, do that. Was there a third camera? Was there a re revamp of the uh, the R the 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 last R? No, um, there was the R and the RP. The RP was just the cheap version, and I think it was the RA, which was the astronomy version. I think they're doing a second version of the R, which is doesn't have the video features and uh, it's a, an update to the R. I could be wrong, but I thought I heard that. I don't know. I don't know. We'll okay. see. We'll see. Uh, all right. Well, let's go ahead and move. Yeah. <laughs> let's go ahead and move on to our next topic. Um, basically what we're talking about this week uh, for our second topic is about decolonizing the photo industry. So uh, as one Daniel, a Danielle, a Stru uh, Scruggs, talks about in her opinion piece for rangefinder while not directly related to the photo bill of rights conversations we've had over the past few weeks uh, there are shades of that topic within what danielle is, is trying to talk about with her um opinion piece uh, basically within the article at least the way i read it is that you know from her opinion we need an open door open the door and present more opportunities to minority visual journalists, especially when covering issues related to that group. Um, as a photo editor, Danielle saw a gap in coverage for her newspaper, particularly in areas of black and Latino members, and decided to cover it with people who could relate to those regions. You know, uh, I'm just going to open this up to the panel. I'm not selecting anyone specific to start talking about it but you know do you agree or disagree with danielle should race gender nationality or any other factors besides skill and capability play a role when choosing someone to cover a story so i'll just open that up to the crowd come on okay yes. hey, no takers <laughs> i'm gonna pick on somebody now i'm refreshing my uh memory here well, you know, um, it's I mean, it's a very interesting topic and it's one that uh, we kind of there's all these it's, there's no black and white to it. There's so many shades of gray to this. And, and uh, it should be I think that's why we kind of hesitate when we like ask the question is like because there's no clear cut answer to this one. I mean, there's lots there's it's so layered. It really is. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree. You know, I certainly think, like, as a woman, I've I've been given assignments because I'm a woman. Um, like having access to certain like sympathetic topics or sensitive topics. You know, like if it's regarding like uh, sexual abuse or rape or childbirth even so you know there are there are times I think when photo editors are even you know it just is maybe easier does that mean I think that men couldn't cover the same topics that I'm covering and then when you get into race um it gets even you know even you know trickier um it's you know can it's like there's always that she I just glanced at the article but I mean you're looking at it from an empathy perspective um mm -hmm. and a connection perspective so there's always the element of being able to build trust with your subject and connect with your subject and then bring back, you know, the best pictures. But I think, and I think that um, in our industry, we've seen that many groups have been, you know, just underrepresented. So either persons of color or even women for that matter, or transgender, LGBT community, all of, the, all of our, the, the entire like mass of photographers and people doing, you know, in the professional world, is broadening and we're opening our eyes to the need, you know, that we need more diversity. It has been exclusive in some ways and we're trying to, to fix that. But like as a general principle, I think, you know, I would love to believe that everybody can connect and do the same um, work. But I, I, I know for a fact that there are times when a subject might feel more comfortable with, um, you know, depending on the, gender or race of the photographer and that might be a call that an editor want to make wants to make like who can get the best access who can connect who's going to make someone you know feel more comfortable as a general principle in covering the news i you know it's, it's a broad topic there's no clear-cut answer but i know for a fact that when i've photographed women who've been victims of rape i don't know if a man would be able to have the same access or empathy or or or, or it doesn't mean that they can't have empathy but that the, one, the subject may not feel. They may automatically feel that there's a barrier. And, you know, I'd love to believe that we could all connect in our own way, but I think there are differences. And um, there may be, you know, this is a valid, this is a, a very valid discussion. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, that's why I'm bringing it up, because I think, you know, there is, there's a, something to be said about the the nature of, of how we assign uh, jobs and, and whatnot, different sort of topics and areas uh, to cover. I think, you know, uh, we, when we have talked about certain topics like this in the past and, and certain areas, I know uh, we've had on photojournalists who have covered, you know, like women in Afghanistan. And that's a very kind of closed off society with very rigid gender roles and rules. And so in that case, you know, these women were much, you know, it was almost like you couldn't even have a guy alone with them in sort of their private areas to do, you know, it was physically and like legally, you know, who knows, religiously impossible to do that and cover it in any way that would be honest to the subject. So, yeah, and in certain cases like that, I believe full, fully that, you know, picking the right person for the job is essential. Um, you know, Isadora you know, you're part of Women Photograph. Danielle is part of, you know, Women Photograph. She was a mentor for the group. I don't know if you knew her or, you know, I know, um, Evelyn, you're also a member of Women Photograph. If either of you know her, but, you know, uh, you know, what are your thoughts on uh, sort of the, the topics that Danielle has kind of brought up here? Do you, do you agree with any of them or disagree? Or what are your thoughts? I, I don't know what 
topics in particular uh, you're referencing, the first thing I will say is it's very hard to have a panel discussion about diversity and race and not have a person of color photographer on the panel. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's hard as four white uh, people. Um, I mean, I don't want to assume whiteness here, but from what I can see to have a discussion about race um, is the first thing I would say, because we don't have that um, marginal voice represented. But what I will say is that the discussion around diversity is a critical one uh, because I do think that the personal experiences of a photographer, the experience of identity as a photographer is an important one. The lived experience storyteller versus the limited lived experience storyteller is a different voice and vision. Uh -huh. uh, of course, I think that uh, one would hope that all people could cover stories, but I think it's mainly about asking yourself on a personal level when you get an assignment or when you start a personal project, are you the person to be telling the story? And looking at your favorite story, do you feel a sense of responsibility in doing it, a sense of duty? Why do you feel connected to the subject matter or the persons or the community? before going into it because it being a good story is not grounds for sensitive work you need to feel fully invested and i'm not saying that certain stories are off limit to people who don't belong to that community but i think it's very important to think and reflect before entering into those spaces because like what I was saying in terms of representation of women photographers telling the stories of women i've also received multiple reactions from survivors of violence, from survivors of childhood trauma, who are women or women identified, who have told me, I showed up with a writer about a year ago on an assignment uh, about a woman who had been sexually assaulted in the workplace. And she said within a few minutes of us entering the space on the first day of documenting her, how relieved she was that they sent women uh, to document the story. So I also think that it relates to subject comfort level, um, which is not to say that over time and with the kind of presence we can need to bring to a space that somebody who's from a disparate community might not grow and adapt to our presence. But I think ultimately it's very important to consider the author uh, when assigned. And I don't think that it's that white photographers can still tell the stories of people of color. I think it's what um, some of the voices that we've heard recently are trying to say is that uh, we also have color telling the stories of people of color, that, that we can no longer move forward as a visual culture without that. Um, mm -hmm. By not having that level of inclusion, we are trying to rewrite a history, and the history is that, yes, journalism has been a white male gaze stance that's just reality mm -hmm. and we need to move away from that in order to have an industry that actually aligns with justice because lack of equity lack of diverse voices how are we any different than the forces that we're trying to fight against in our work in a, in a more just society yeah no good points all around absolutely um, you know, I posed the question in my notes and I'll pose it to you all here, you know, 
you're an assignment editor, let's say you're choosing uh, to send someone on assignments, you know, let's say you have someone of high experience, uh, but they're a majority and some of low experience in their minority or high experience in their minority, low experience in their majority, you know, do you send the experienced person to cover, you know, I, again, like I, I take your point, you know, it's sensitive based on which, you know, each um, individual case, uh, but, you know, in general, though, you know, does experience play a role uh, or is the overriding factor going to be their relation to the subject they're covering? What's sort of your take on that sort of, how do I say? I certainly, I certainly hope know, it all gets, I, I certainly hope in a just society that it all gets weighed in together. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's uh, it, it, you, you take all the factors and you say what's going to be best for, you know, everyone involved and the article mm-hmm. and, and look at it that way. Um, I, I, I always have a problem with doing something just for the sake of doing it. You know, it's like, oh, you never mm-hmm. buy me flowers and then you buy me flowers. It's like, no, that's not what I meant. It's like, you know, it's the whole you know, part of acknowledging someone and doing the right thing from the get-go. Sorry, I don't buy you flowers enough, Travis. I apologize for that. It's true. It's true, you know, but it's, 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 it's more, it's not the flowers that are important. It's the acknowledgement of actually doing something for someone in the right, when you're, you know, when it's not Valentine's Day or something like that. It's, you know, it's, it's like, it, you, you need to have these conversations. You need to do the right thing all along. It's not like suddenly just because it's an issue, you start doing it. It's, it's, it has to be a conversation. It has to become part of our lexicon. It has to become what we're taught. It has to be part of the, you know, uh, everything that we're about and uh, unless we start doing it on a daily basis doing it just because of you know a, a you know black lives matter issue or something like that these are starting points it's the first step but we need to make sure that this is part of the lexicon of what we do every day okay anyone else you're the assignment editor what what decision do you make i mean i can't i think i couldn't like Travis said, you've got to weigh all these things. I mean, I can't just look at it in like such black and white terms. I mean, I think uh, you can be reactionary and you can be an editor who's making reactionary sort of assigning choices. But I think, you know, you're going to, there are a lot of talented photographers out there and just, you know, you can bring in new, new um, eyes and, and look at new, you know, people's work that maybe you hadn't considered before. And, you know, I'm, you know, it's, it's a broad question, but I think, yes, you like weigh all the factors, you make the best decision and you realize that maybe if you haven't been hiring enough um, diverse uh, voices that, you know, you can reconsider and, and, and like, you know, get new perspectives. Um, But it's hard to, you know, you can't, it's hard to just balance those, to to give an answer on those two things. I think, you know, you got to weigh all the factors and look at, what's going on and maybe realize, you know, that you haven't, I I think that's important for editors to sort of look at the types of people they have been hiring. And I don't think that means, you know, saying, okay, well, we've had somebody working here for, you know, X number of years, but they're not, you know, necessarily a person of color. Like, you know, you don't want to just like change. It's not about like, I'm going to hire this person that's going to make things right or not hire this person for this assignment. It's, it's just like, you know, like, we have to get this right, like for the future, for the long term. This is like long. These are important issues that we're covering, and there's no quick fix. It's like, how do we make this whole industry better, and the world, and you know, everywhere a better place? And that's looking at our hiring practices. And now we have the gaze on them, like Isadora said. You know, it's really important that we're, you know, we're in this moment now, and it's 
the reasons we're in this moment may be, may be for the wrong reasons, but we can sort of, you know, write the course and, and, and take a look at all these angles that people, that were neglected, frankly. For, you know, I think you're right. I mean, you make a good point. It shouldn't even be a, a topic of experience. It should just be a matter of you have a, you know, a group of people who, you know, you can rely on of a range of diversity of different backgrounds. And you can say, you know, you can assign the right person for the job, right? And it doesn't matter. You're not looking to like, oh, man, they shot for six years and they shot for three years or they have six Pulitzers and they don't have any awards. You know, it should just be like these are all quality, qualified, you know, visual journalists able to do the job. And I'm going to pick the right person that, you know, can do this job to the best of their ability. I mean, that's, that's what it really should boil down to. Um you know, obviously, we, we mentioned the photo bill of rights. Um, you know, uh, Isidore, have you have you looked into that at all? Do you, are you tracking that document? Yeah, I signed the photo bill of rights. I think it's very important to have um, all of that information explicitly provided for people to be able to check in with and reflect upon. And what I'll also say is that experience is a is a place of privilege, right? So who you're giving opportunities to so that they can reach an established level is related to privilege as well. So when we say, oh, this person doesn't have enough experience, well, they don't maybe have enough experience because they're not being assigned to go to particular places to have that exposure. So who we're giving those opportunities to is also something we need to be looking at. Um, and I also think that the most empathetic, socially conscious editor still has their own biases. Right. Um, somebody can be very in touch with the notion of toxic masculinity and white supremacy and still exhibit biases in their hiring practices. This is something that we each need to be doing on a daily basis in refining our ability to be integrated, uh, conscious beings. And biases come up with the, the most kind intention people. You know, it's not a, ma a measure of humanity. It's an issue of sensitivity. It's an issue of consciousness. And I think that some of the greatest editors that I love working with have exhi ex exhibited certain biases towards me being a young woman. I mean, it's just, it's not, it's not, um, it comes up because we are tragically socialized to react to certain markers of identity in certain people. Uh, and I hope that with more of these discussions, with more of these changes on an institutional level, will each as individuals be able to reflect that change in our behaviors on a daily basis, even the most well-intentioned people. Absolutely. And, you know, we've talked about, I'm sorry, somebody, Samson, you know, we've talked about the photo bill of rights on the last few episodes and, you know, we've, we've had some folks who have been very much in you know, favor of it. Some people have been very much against it. You know, there has been some criticism and, and arguments stated, you know, for the fact that it, you know, maybe it has a, a bit too perhaps on the nose with regard to, you know, topics related to the news, you know, with like, you know, the Black Lives Matter and whatnot. And might be, you know, in some of people's opinions, you know, that's might be too politically charged. You know, do you have, you know, as a signatory of it, you know, do you have anything to say to those kind of arguments against it? Or if you've seen the arguments against it and do you have any thoughts on that? into the arguments against it. So I can't really comment on that. Okay. 
Well, there's definitely stuff in there uh, as, as a photojournalist uh, about in the toolbox of it saying that you should go up and talk to your people before photographing them, so, you know, let them know. And if you're a photojournalist, there, there's certain things that's just not going to happen. I mean, how do you take a, a, an image of uh, something happening in a protest and, uh, and running up to the person? I'm going to take your photo. This is what I do. It's like it's just yeah. not going to happen. So, I mean, there's a lot in I think it's a very good intention. And, and, and this is sort of a recap from the, the weeks prior. It's, it's a good intention and a good starting point. There's no. Um, holding people to it. There's no repercussions. There's no uh, database. It's like, it's like, why am I signing this? It's like, there's a lot in there that's telling me what I can and can't do. But also at the same time, you're not holding me anybody accountable. It's not like an editor is going to look like, oh, did you sign it? Did you didn't sign it? Am I going to hire you? Not going to hire you? It's a personal thing for you. And it's not, I think it's written on a slant of one side without taking the other side into consideration. So it's, it's a good starting point, but like I said on everything else, it's not going to make the change. It's 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 just not going to hold people to accountability. It's not going to do anything. So we need to have these conversations every day and not through a bill of rights. I think this is a good conversation point. I don't think it's something that people should be signing. I think it's an ever evolving document from my experience with some of the people who created it. That it, it's yeah. an I agree with that. Yeah, no, I think it puts a lot of good ideas in one place, but, you know, like Travis said, it's, it's, there's no teeth to it. So, you know, it's, it's a step forward, but it's uh, got a long way to go. Yeah. All right, well, I'm, let's glad, go ahead. I'm glad we're, I'm glad we're having the conversation and doing it though. That's the important part. Absolutely. That's what it's supposed to facilitate, right? I mean, without yes. it, uh, without the book, what do we read? So that's the book and then yeah. we're, we're dissecting it. Exactly. Absolutely. All right, let's go ahead and uh, jump to our last topic this week. Uh, it's all about you, Isadora. Uh, so you covered a really unique story uh, about a threesome couple, an elderly couple, um, and threesome. They're not a couple. Uh, a trio. I apologize. They're a trio. <laughs> I, actually, I wrote this in my notes. I should have just read off my notes. Um, <laughs> Here, this is what I was going to say in my notes. Our final topic this evening is all about Isadora, or more specifically, one story she did about a somewhat unusual couple, or should I say trio, of seniors. In her story, Senior Love Triangle, she showcases the lives of Jenny, Jenny, Will, and Adina, and their unusual relationship. So uh, I'll throw it over to you, Isadora. Tell us about this awesome story and how you kind of came upon it. Well, I I met Jeannie, Will, and Adina at a retirement home in Los Angeles where I was photographing a woman. Over the At that point, I had been photographing her for three years. And I was sitting in the parking lot one night, and I saw Jeannie, Will, and Adina approach the gate. And I saw Jeannie enter the facility, and I watched Adina and William walk away towards the bus stop because he was taking Adina back to the retirement home where she lived. And I saw Jeannie and this sense of rejection, sense of remoteness, and I I empathized with what I saw. And I was curious, which I think is the cornerstone of being a storyteller, is that intense curiosity. So I observed the dynamic, and I inherently knew that there was a romantic conflict going on just from observing them. And I had interacted with Jeannie previously Um, I had seen her in the dining room when I was photographing Bianca, the woman that I was shadowing at that facility. 
And I had seen William separately too. I had actually said hello to him and I didn't get a response. He was someone that was definitely in moments very much in his own world. So I approached them a couple of weeks later. I observed them from afar in the facility and around the facility. And I checked in with um, some of the people working there. And I had noticed that um, there was always this kind of tension between the three of them and the other people in the facility. And I had overheard Jeannie talking to someone at the front desk about William. So I had confirmed through talking and interacting with people and observing that they were in this non-monogamous dynamic. And that was obviously something I was very drawn to because it was a period in my life where I was very focused on documenting relationships. And having photographed seniors in various facilities from the age of 13 onwards when I first picked up a camera, it was very clear to me over those years of being a self-taught photographer and looking at other documentary photography about aging or aging people, that we have very singular narratives of what aging looks like, especially in this country. Um, we tend to see seniors as depicted as having um, different diseases or ailments, or um, we do work around death and dying, um, which is what I initially started doing myself. I mean, I, my first project was in hospice care. So over those years, I was trying in the back of my mind to look for stories that were different from what we were seeing um, in visual storytelling about what it's like to be older, because it's obviously much more complex than being a grandparent or being in a state of demise. So when I saw the three of them, um, I was captivated. And photographing them, it was interesting because I had spent so much time with um, with seniors, but I didn't really see them as seniors because I was this young adult finding myself developing and they really were like peers. And so that when I was documenting them, because their issues and their trials and tribulations were really universal, right? Love, jealousy, possession, um, connection, desire for intimacy. I mean, those are not solely amongst that age range, obviously. That's throughout our lives. So um, really rooting myself in the fact that I was photographing a relationship was how I approached them. And um, initially, I was just spending time with them without my camera. And then over time, um, started photographing. And then at some point, as is the case with people that you shadow, they started to forget that I was there. And they were the least concerned people of the last 13 years with my photography. They were so consumed with the drama of what was going on amongst them, uh, their needs, um, being able to keep their dynamic alive as other forces were trying to break them up within their families or within these institutions. So they were so caught up in their lives that I got to just be there as this fly on the wall. No, that's great. I think that's the that's what we all strive for, you know, in photojournalism and visual journalism is being able to blend in in the background and, you know, just being able to do our work. Um, you know, two things I'll say to that. One, you know, since you were shooting mirrorless, did you shoot on silent mode to kind of put yourself more in the background? And, you know, two, you know, did you ever feel like perhaps they were playing up for you, like initially maybe, and then that sort of went away? And could you see that happening over time? Or was it always something like, you know, at a certain point you earned their trust and it was just always sort of you were in the background at that point? Well, I, I photographed them over the course of three or four years. 
and they broke up five years ago. So this is an early early body of work of mine. That okay, got it. Recently turned into a book. So at that point, I was not shoot. There was no mirrorless setup. So um, I had my my full on <laughs> SLR present. And did I feel that they were playing it up initially? No, they were. Um, it's all about energy, right? As a documentary photographer, as a visual journalist, it's it's not. Is it really about photography? You know, it's about connecting with people, and that connection is paramount. And they connected with me. Um, there's a kind of nonverbal language that comes up with people that you connect with on that level that you shadow for years, and they just know who you are. I mean, that's the case right now with different assignments and projects. And I'm wearing a mask. I'm six feet away. Sometimes I'm mm -hmm. 10 feet away. Sometimes I'm just in your doorway, not your bedroom anymore. And it's irrelevant, actually. It's challenging, but people still know who you are. They yeah. feel you. They understand your intention very often in a nonverbal way. And that was very much the case with the three of them where um, they were, they just liked me. I mean, I think that's the root of it. You know, they just liked me as a person. They knew the photography was a part of that. They knew it would eventually be public. Mm -hmm. And when I, when the first section uh, was published in time in 2012, I told William, you know, the project's out. When I met up with them a day later, you know, do you want to see it, it? I told him, you know, it's in time and he didn't really care. <laughs> you know, he was just like, Okay, great. Like he was, <laughs> the story was out there, um, but they were just much more concerned with with having me around and um, liked my presence. And then ultimately, I think what it came down to was, especially for Jeannie, and I think for William and Adina in different ways, they felt seen and heard through what I was doing. Mm -hmm. uh, in reflection, in looking back over the course of years when they broke up, it was a sense of you know. Um, Obviously, there's a heightened invisibility when you reach that age. And yeah. I think that's pretty universally known and almost cliche to say, like, our seniors are pushed aside. They're disenfranchised. I mean, look at what's going on in the nursing homes right now. I mean, if that is a symptom of what I'm discussing, it's a symptom of a culture that undervalues and denigrates our older people uh, because of our correlation between capital and body and the fact that they are yeah. disabled, it, it, the fact that many of them require care somehow in our eyes collectively that makes them unworthy. Um, and I think that this story allowed people to really connect with the fact that seniors have full lives and just because you retire doesn't mean that you're not looking for love, you're not looking for adventure, uh, which I think yeah. the three of them found amongst each other. You know, I have to think at a, at a root level, they're just enamored by the fact that, one, they're being paid attention to and, and that they're being paid attention to by such a young person. You know, that a young person wants to spend time with them and, you know, cover their story and focus on their lives. I think that's something that, you know, probably a lot of our seniors would love to have that kind of attention. And, you know, uh, I think there's so many great seniors out there with so many great stories to tell. And, you know, it's probably, again, a treasure trove of things. And they're just looking for, you know, someone with who, who honestly cares about what their story is and is willing to tell it. Um, you know, again, going back to the, the mirrorless question, though, you know, would you shoot something like this now with mirrorless or have you used the silent mode? Is that I know Evelyn has talked about, you know, how she 
likes the mirrorless and, and for that matter you know the silent capability it's very effective in a you know packed sort of um you know state room or whatnot when you're shooting congress people you know have you used that capability is that something you like about the mirrorless do you think you'd use it for this if you were shooting it today i think so i think i would use the mirrorless if i was working with them today um, i've used it uh in contexts where um that click can maybe be disruptive. I think it's most helpful to amongst people that aren't that familiar with you as well. And I have this um, long-term assignment with Nat Geo and I have been in a context where there are classroom settings for this project. There are um, moments of silence, of meditation, and that click can be annoying. I mean, I've just adapted to that over the years, but, um, yeah, it's, I think it's conducive to the kind of effect we'd like to have, which is uh, present but detached, not an unobtrusive, um, not adding to the environment, just being in it with people, being immersed. So I think that silent shutter allows for that immersion, perhaps, you know, at least auditorially um, to happen more quickly and then it's helpful in assignments when you have to build trust and intimacy quickly. Yeah, Evelyn or Travis, do you guys use your, your, your mirrorless or when you did use the mirrorless, did you use it on silent mode or do you use the shutter sound? You lot, what, what do you use primarily? I use it. Or does it matter? Silent? Yeah. Travis, your mic is mute. I got so you. I did. There yeah. you go. I'm I'm good. I'm back. Uh, it depends on the circumstance. I think uh, you know. Obviously, uh, there there are some limitations when you're shooting on uh, on uh, silent on uh, the way it, uh, it it processes the light, and uh, you can have uh, banding issues uh, on certain cameras uh, in silent mode. So if um, yeah. you're shooting in certain lighting and something like that, you you, you don't want to use that mode. But if you're in other situations, like when I'm shooting behind the scenes on on a film set or something like that, and it's during a take, you have to put it on film on silent yeah. because otherwise you have to put it in kind of a zeppelin or something like that and uh, it works fantastic you can be right next to the sound man you know shooting away uh in a scene and it has no effect it's just a it's a wonderful addition or you know for people that are you know shooting weddings in a church or something like that or, or, or very sensitive funerals or, or, or certain moments uh silent is the only way to go yeah no absolutely at the one time or the one instance I wouldn't use silent mode for is when you're shooting like really high action because I've noticed the rolling shutter is much higher in silent mode, at least for my Panasonic cameras. So I was shooting some um, like drill members, you know, flipping the rifles around and you can see just like a propeller blade, it's like it's bending the rifle into a C practically. Um, so in that instance, uh, electronic shutter did not work for me. Um, Isidore, you mentioned fly on the wall uh, aspect of your story. And I thought, you know, the, the photo that most sticks out at, from me from your series, or at least, you know, I resonate the most with in terms of just its impact is the the photo where Will yells in Jeannie's face. And I thought, man, if you, you know, that's like the kind of emotion that comes out when you are a fly on the wall. You know, can you talk to us a little about that photo? And then uh, Evelyn and Travis, if there are any photos that you think, you know, you think Isidore, you like to ask Isidore about, you know, please do. Well, that photograph was taken about two years into shadowing them, maybe less. And uh, 
William definitely had a propensity for these rageful explosions, which there are a number of other images that depict that um, when they were on the streets having conflicts. But uh, I feel like that image is the most uh, explicit in depicting that level of anger and he would have those episodes in front of me and I think that speaks to the status I had in that space at that point with them that he, they were so used to being readily vulnerable in front of me and I was just a part of um, the fabric of their experiences that he didn't feel inhibited to share that level of rage in front of me. Thank you. That's definitely an unguarded moment for sure. Uh, Evelyn, Travis, any any pictures or any aspect of the story that stuck out to you? I mean, the whole thing overall is is fabulous, and I, I, I'm thankful that uh, there are people doing this type of work. <laughs> yeah, I was my I was curious more about um, like when do you decide like you've shot en enough in a long-term project or it's done or you come to completion? Like, when does that point come? That's a good question and something that a lot of people ask me they want to know how to set a personal deadline to, you know, to figure out whether one work goes out into the world. And personally, uh, it's all rooted in intuition. I started this project with this woman in Northern California in 2013. And I told her, she asked me how long would it take for me to work on this project I was doing about her. And I told her six months and it's been eight years. So, and it's not, I've never shared it. So, <laughs> um, I mean, there are less dramatic examples of that in terms of just working on a project for a few years and then deciding that I wanted to publish it. But I've had moments with work where I've published and then regretted it because there's been a new development in someone's life and I wished I would have stayed longer. I mean, I continue the relationships, but I wish I hadn't shared the work as early as I did. I think it's such a personal choice. I think it's really based on the story. I think it's based on the connection you have. And I think it's ultimately rooted in intuition, which is the way where I work from a lot of the time. And I'll just know at some point in a story that it's ready to be shared. Um, it's ready to go out in the world. And almost always I continue the relationship with the people from that project. And I just continue to add work to their story because sometimes the story is published again or there are updates or just to have as this document of their lives. I mean, you spend years with people, those relationships, at least for me, they continue. Yeah, I mean, you know, speaking of long-term stories, you mentioned the documentary you've been working on for eight years. Do you see a, a point where, like, that it will be released soon, or you can't even uh, pick a date? Um, well, I feel like, I feel like when I reach intuitively, when I sort of feel into that story, that probably when we reach the 10-year mark, it'll be ready. Um She's currently grappling with some health issues, which are very much part of her story. So um, we're waiting to see her through that. I, I'm waiting to see her through that. And um, you know, the longer, the better, honestly. Uh -huh. you where know, you spend it personally with certain subject matters, um, the more you get at the essence of a person, it goes beyond this 
these journalistic buzzwords or it's a story about X, Y, and Z, but you get a person at the end of it instead of an issue. And that very much feels the case for that project where I've just been able to sit in that environment with her for years and really see her through this trajectory. And then there are certain issues that come up with stories like I've been working on a project for three years in New Mexico that deals with the effect of prolonged trauma on young women. And the one of the young women that I've been shadowing very closely, who I consider basically the, the main subject of the project, a collaborator, whatever word you want to use, person being documented. Um, now she's in a legal battle and I don't want to share the work because I don't want the work to impact the outcome of her case. Yeah. Um, her child custody battle. So sometimes you're ready to share work, but there's something going on in the person's life and you would hope that sharing their story is a cathartic experience. You'd never want the work to be weaponized. So I think it's yeah. about really looking at not only are you ready to share it, but is it going to harm the person that it's about if it's out in the world at a particular time in their lives too. Absolutely. Uh, getting back to your love triangle story, you did a TED talk on it. Can you talk a little about that experience, kind of giving the talk, and then sort of the the feedback or the sort of the reaction that came from it? Yeah, um, I was I became a TED Fellow in 2018. Uh, it's a program. It's a network of about 450 change makers, as they call us, and it's people in in all disciplines um, imaginable, uh, everything imaginable. Uh, it's not so photography or arts, it's science, it's um, engineering, it's pretty much anything. Um, and I was admitted into that program in 2018 and they asked me to come up with a talk um, to give at their main conference. And I just couldn't think of another story that would fit into the structure of a TED talk. Like this story, um, it was going to be too hard with the kind of longitudinal work that I do to pick any of my other projects for a five minute talk. And, um, and I just felt like with their story, it was, um, it was something that could fit within the structure of, of what was requested. So I decided to share their story in that format. And um, the responses have been very telling. I mean, there are people who are very moved. There are people who feel seen through the work. There are people that are very uncomfortable. Um, everything that you would imagine um, from a story that deals with with some of the themes that we've discussed around aging and older people. And I think most people don't want to think about sexuality amongst older people, too. I think that inherently comes up when you're looking at romance. So um, especially in the U.S. So like a lot of the discomfort comes from <laughs> comes from people in the U.S. You know, when when it's out, it's it's been translated in many languages uh, and the responses are just different amongst Europeans, for example, or people of other um, nationalities. So uh, within a, an Anglo um, perspective, uh, a lot of people are uncomfortable uh, thinking about older people engaging in this way, um, because I think inherently when you're looking at this story for some people, it's bringing up issues around meaning and fears around maybe never having the love that they want in their lives. Um, fears that it's never going to happen. We have these certain tropes about love and relationships and finding this soulmate. And I think this story beyond the, the, the it being about seniors, it's also about adopting new kinds of relationships to get your needs met. 
and how far will you go to have those needs met? And a lot of people have been in love triangle setups, like practically everybody that I know. I mean, it's just maybe not necessarily as readily talked about. It's certainly not necessarily in these explicit non-monogamous forms, but we've all been in some kind of love triangle, even if it's spiritually, in terms of like being with someone and still thinking about an ex. I mean, that's a kind of triangulation. So I think it pushes people to certain points of assessing the purpose of their own relationships and thinking about meaning and um, what their expectations are in their love life. And again, was there any feedback or any sort of like, did, did uh, the larger stage of the TED Propt uh, provide to you, did that you know, give you any sort of feedback from the larger world that perhaps when, you, when it, you know, the larger audience saw that, that maybe you got more feedback or diverse opinion from it? Or was it basically, you know, again, I, like I said, a lot of people have different feelings about this, but was there anything like, did it lead to or garner more uh, attention um, from any other entities? Attention, it's kind of it's kind of hard to know whether it's certain kinds of attention have come from the talk. Um, I think that it's definitely created conversations from what I've seen. Um, it's been really great to um, see those conversations be sustained and then be a part of the book um, that was released in February that is of their story. Um, and I feel like the, you know, the book is ultimately a more expansive view than the talk. I, I would say that, if anything, the talk also provided a platform for documentary photography. You know, it, it was a, it was an, an ability, giving me an ability to share their story with a wide audience that, you know, a lot of the people who watch TED Talks, they're not looking at the New York Times, they're not looking at Time Magazine. Uh, TED accesses a certain population, so it allowed for a broader view of their story, of some of what we're discussing, but then also about, of documentary photography because I went up and I spoke about documentary photography. Um, it wasn't just to talk about their story. You know, there needed to be some context as a visual storyteller. Um, a lot of people don't even know what documentary photography is. I, I use photojournalists a lot, mainly because I'm kind of tired of explaining what documentary photography is in basic, like short conversations in supermarkets with people. So um, it was also allowing a platform for people to understand what a documentarian is and what the purpose of a documentarian is. I think that also, that platform allowed for that as well. So I think it wasn't just their story that was highlighted. It was documentary photography, documentary storytelling, photojournalism, um, because those words were used interchangeably in the talk. Absolutely. Great insight. Um, you know, for the most part, uh, you know, your photos, you're very selective in, in terms of where you focus. Um, you know, these photos, like, again, you know, there's like a shot where, you know, you have uh, one of the, the ladies, you know, out of focus. And it's because in the background, it's, you know, uh, Will and the other woman um, hugging and, you know, you're, you're, you're showing that sort of dynamic between them. But there were two photos in your set on your website that struck me as uh, not necessarily out of place, but just different from the rest because of their use of focus and blurring and whatnot. Uh, specifically, you know, Will reclines on the floor in his studio apartment and Janine and Will embrace on the floor. You know, those two photos in particular are, you know, especially 
you know, soft and, and whatnot and blurry. And, and I'm just curious, you know, what was sort of your uh, mindset for, for choosing those as part of the set? You know, what was sort of you getting across showing, uh, you know, this these photos in this way? I think it's um, film and cinema has been such a profound um, source of inspiration for me as a documentary photographer, as a photojournalist. I feel like a lot of my inspiration, a lot more of my inspiration has come from from classic cinema, um, from Italian neorealism to German expressionism to um, film noir of the 40s, um, looking at shadow and light and, and shallow depth of field. So I would say that the kind of range that is on in the edit on the website, which hasn't been updated in a long time, but if you look at the book, uh, you see that too. Um, just giving people um, different senses of their mood, um, just being able to give people this, this spectrum of, of what I experienced shadowing them and that be reflected in the kind of technique as well. And a kind of loneliness too. I think shallow depth of field is, a, is a, you're looking at a, a subjectivity within that. It's more, you know, if you look at if you study cinema, that's certainly used in movies as an attempt to get, let's say, get into the actor's head or that character's head. So I think, um, not necessarily thinking about that actively as I'm photographing, but in hindsight, I think, it, you know, certain um, images, the way that they're shot, I think it's trying to reflect um, being inside, being with that person, um, being attuned to that person. And then ultimately a certain kind of remoteness, which I think is just a part of my work in general. It's so much about loneliness. I don't really feel like this project is about love necessarily. I think it's so much more about a desire to connect and a remoteness. And then ultimately getting at, even when you're with someone, you can still feel lonely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I don't want to dominate the conversation. Travis or Evelyn, do you have any other any questions about this story or anything uh, for Isadora? No, it was very in-depth and wonderful, and I, I definitely suggest people go look at the work because it's uh, great. Yeah, And go buy the book, right? Is the book yeah, out? Yeah, absolutely. Or when does the book come? Is the book... The, book? the book is out on Amazon. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, I will put a link to the uh, book on our show notes, so go check that out. Um, you said you photographed this five years ago, so what's the status of the story now? So... Uh... William and Adina have since passed away, and Jeannie is still living. She's living with family. Uh, they broke up, and uh, Adina and Jeannie's families moved uh, them elsewhere to two different locations. So Adina actually moved out of state, and uh, Jeannie relocated with her family uh, in a different part of California. And um, William ultimately passed away without having any connection to the two of them. They all lost touch. Um, and uh, he's buried in the military cemetery here in Riverside County, California, because he was a World War II veteran. And uh, Jeannie has been struggling with, with memory impairment for quite some time. Um, I wish they could see the book. I wish Adina and William could see the book, but their energy felt very present when I was printing it in Germany in November. Um, the story is also the basis for a narrative feature film that's coming out. Um, 
2021. And uh, that's another interpretation of their story that I co-wrote. So they've had many lives, um, more than they ever imagined. Jeannie always dreamt of being a, a known uh, actress. And I feel like she's getting her stage finally, or she's getting her, she's getting her, her spotlight um, through my work, which I never imagined either, because when I was working on this project, I didn't expect it to have the kind of resonance that it's had. So I'm just pleased to see them live on. Um, they had very full lives. Uh, Dina was a linguist. She spoke five or six languages. Um, they had careers. They had marriages. They had children. Um, and then they had this. And I'm pleased to see them uh, liberating people uh, from some of the secrets that come up through this project. Awesome. Well, uh, hopefully we can have you back on when that movie comes out. Oh, yeah, you talk to us about going to the premiere of it. I would love to be able to come back and talk about it. It's a whole, whole other, uh, whole other discussion. Yeah. Definitely. All right. Well, uh, I think that's going to bring us to the end of this week's show. Uh, Isadora, can you tell people where they can find about uh, more about you and your work? Well, you can find me on Instagram at my name at Isadora Kosofsky, or add me on Facebook, which I don't really use, or follow me on Twitter, which I don't really use either. So I'd suggest Instagram. <laughs> Um, you can also go to my website, isadorakosofsky.com. And if you have any questions and I didn't cover something in here, feel free to email me. Thanks. What people don't know is Isadora has a very vibrant MySpace page, which she's always on <laughs> and updating. That's really funny because I used to post my photos on MySpace. Oh, okay. I'm yeah. sure Tom liked them. I can't find <laughs> MySpace, though. It's a bummer. I'd really like to see those old messages. but Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's all kind of all my glitter gifs and uh, auto playing music. Uh, it's all gone to the. I, I miss past. all my AOL instant messenger messages. <laughs> yeah, CompuServe, CompuServe, CompuServe. Now, who's going to be on your top eight? I don't know. Facebook needs to make that a, a feature. Um, all right. Well, that brings us to the end of this week's show. Evelyn, you got anything for us before we sign off? I do not. Enjoy your week, everyone, and I'll see you next week. And always remember to top up your coffee. That's right. Uh, Travis, Travis, anything going on in your world we need to know about? No. Like, it's, you it's, know, you're, uh, where, what was that, Dave? I was going to say, where are you going to be and when are you going to be there at all times? Just, you know, a list of your locations. Yeah, unfortunately, the, the travel has been cut down by, I don't know, yeah. this crazy world. Uh, so I'm not At your house and all the time. Yep, yep, yep. I'm shooting myself. <laughs> Indeed. Now, I've seen you've done some good self-portraits. I like that one you did where it's like you took a portrait from like 10 years ago and updated it to today. I thought that was pretty neat. That's a neat project. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I started this whole kind of uh, photographer uh, support kind of group that all kind of helps each other. And we do a weekly challenge, and uh, that one was uh, to take an old picture and kind of re-envision it and redo it. But uh, each week we kind of come up with these great challenges. And it's amazing to see uh, when you just say like one word, all the different interpretations and wonderful work that comes out of it. I like that photographer support group, Photographers Anonymous. Yeah, exactly. Hello, I'm Dave, and I've been photographing for 21 years. The, the initial Dave. the initial title for the group was Sunday Night Support. Uh, Sunday Night, uh, what was it? Sunday Night, uh, oh, now I'm forgetting. Uh, I can't believe. 
Well, thank you for all uh, joining us and watching this Monday night support group or Monday morning <laughs> support group, depending on when you're watching it or when you're checking it, uh, it was, out. It was Sunday night group therapy. That's what it was. Oh, okay. Great, great. Um, well, if you'd like to continue the therapy, please do so online by going to one of our social media networks, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, YouTube, all that fun stuff. You can leave comments on what we talked about. You can argue with us online, tell us we're wrong or right, uh, whatever you'd like to do. Uh, so continue the conversation online. You can find links to all of our um, you know, show notes as well as all of our social media at AroundTheLens.com. Additionally, if you'd like to support the show financially, you can go to Patreon.com slash AroundTheLens and join for as little as a dollar a month to get everything we do uh, ahead of time and not to mention a lot of cool exclusive stuff that we put only on there. So go check that out and uh, support the show or tell someone about the show. That would be the best, biggest support you can do right there. Um, just spread the word and let's grow the audience. All right. Well, that's going to end it for this week's show, episode 234. Isadora, thank you so much for taking time out to be here. I truly appreciate it. Happy to have you on anytime you want. And for Evelyn Hochstein and Travis Keys, I am David J. Murphy. This has been episode 234 Around the Lens, and we're out. Thanks for listening to Around the Lens. We hope you enjoyed the show. To continue the conversation, head on over to one of our social media outlets such as Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, or Twitter. To support the show financially, consider donating to us via Patreon. For show notes from this week's episode and links to everything else we talked about, just go to our website, AroundTheLens.com. Finally, if you or someone you know might be a good guest for the show, get in touch with us via email at info at AroundTheLens.com.